0: So you're probably wondering what the intro to today's show was. But there's a reason we played that music for the start of today's show. And there's a man who knows not only what that makes you feel like, but how to manipulate it. And he's the guest on today's innovation show, Joel Beckerman, CEO and founder of Manmade music. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Great to be here.
0: Great to be here. And thank you for your kind invitation and and tour around the studio here in Man Made Music in New York.
1: We're recording on location.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, if the sound is awesome, Justin is managing the sound for this. That's why it's better than usual. Uh, So, Joel, it'd be great before we talk about how to manipulate sound, how it affects experience, all that that is so well captured in the book. Let's talk about you and your your background because you've such an in-depth background and, and you have collected so many dots and now you've connected them in a really unique way and created this vision Mm. that you had such a long time ago.
1: That's very kind of you. Um, So anyway, the shameless plug is that the book is uh, called The Sonic Boom. Subtitle is How Sound Transforms the Way We Think, Feel, and Buy. Basically, the premise on the book is whether or not we realize that every single moment of our lives is scored by music and sound, and that is constantly changing our mood in an instant making and breaking emotional connections and actually guiding our choices. Um, it it all sort of culminates I what I talk about is sonic humanism, which certainly impacts business and impacts experiences. It also just sort of impacts our our lives as human beings in so many different ways.
0: Until I read the book, I wasn't aware of of sound. It's almost like it, it I was gonna say open your eyes. It opens your ears to Everything from boom moments that you talk about in the book, but to sonic junk that we're surrounded by. And also when I walked into the the fantastic studios here in Mad Made Music is the sound of silence as well, or near silence. And what that actually does to you emotionally totally changes the the tone in your head and and your brainwaves. Everything changes.
1: Yeah, it sure does. I mean, I just want to sort of start out by apologizing to your audience, because once you listen to this, you will not hear your life the same way again. That's one of the things about delving into this world is so much of what we experience in music and sound really is at the subconscious level. And something very peculiar happens when you start digging into this subconscious and making it conscious and you start recognizing it everywhere. But I mean, you're you're right from the standpoint of this really being an incredibly rich field that I sort of stumbled on. I'm a composer. I've worked on about 50 different television series, and I was did what everyone else wanted to do in their 20s and try to be in a rock band. And I was in a couple of rock bands, and like a lot of rock bands, you get to a certain point, the band's really good, you got the great songs, and the show is great. And then you get label interest, and you have a, a couple of showcases. We got some interest from some labels, and of course, there's a big fight in the band, and it breaks up. So after I went through that a couple of times, it's like, oh, man, I hate this. I love playing in a band, but I hate this. And trying to make a career out of it just wasn't, it just wasn't for me. So I sort of segued into doing scoring for commercials, which was kind of fun for a while, but it started to feel very cookie cutter. And it didn't feel very satisfying musically or from a storytelling perspective. Um, Then sort of lo and behold, some of the people I did some of the advertising work with became television producers. And I started scoring television series, um, which I found infinitely more fun. Uh, here I was working in these much more long form types of projects, really being able to sort of play with all the elements of music to help tell stories that were very rich and emotional and interesting and trying to draw people into those stories. Um, and you know, th- th- there you know, there, there obviously have been a bunch of bumps in the music business at different points, but television and film continues to sort of push forward, um. But there's uh, sort of the origin story of this whole thing about sonic branding and thinking about this for me was I was working on a series. I won't tell you which ones. Don't ask. But I was on the working on the finale episode from this series, uh, and it wasn't working. The, they had shot it wrong. They had not concepted it right, and they kept recutting the visuals and sending it back to me. Well, try again, Joel. Let's see what we can do to make this work. And I was on my seventh rewrite of about seven minute sequence of television. And I was just, I had been blurry eyed. I mean, I've been, every time they gave me a new cut, it was like 10 hours and I'd send them something else. And then they changed the cut and sent it back to me. So I was just wiped out. I had like no sleep in a whole week and I'm staring at this seventh cut and I'm thinking to myself... I would like to score anything in the world except what's on this screen right now. And I was thinking, wow, what an interesting concept. And I sort of put that away, did my job, and came back and started thinking about what that would be like. And realizing that everything that I do as a composer, um, which is about, really, when you think about it, it it is about scoring this experience, scoring this story, leading people along. People like J.J. Abrams, the famous film and television director, says 51% of the emotional impact of his movies comes from the soundtrack. And when you think about that, you know, ever watch a movie and turn the sound off and you kind of don't know what's going on. And it's not because you're missing the dialogue. It's because the music and sound sort of help guide you through the story, help you know what to focus on, what to pay attention to. You know, little moments are important in the character development. There's this really, really interesting study just mentioned in the book by Professor Anurad Patel and his, his work really around film soundtrack and sort of more from a neuroscience perspective. What he did was he took a clip of film with the original music and then replaced it with different music and then put that in front of focus groups and sort of did a whole uh, study on it. What he determined is there were so many things that the music did that maybe you wouldn't necessarily know. Immediately, again, subconscious level. Number one is the soundtrack helps you understand the relationship between the characters on the screen. In other words, if he changed the music, you would think they had a different relationship. The music also helps understand, helps you imagine what happened before the scene started. The music also helps you understand whether the, that particular storyline is complete or not complete. The music also helps you imagine that you know what's gonna happen next after this scene. So there are many, many things that are happening very subtly, psychologically, and from a neuroscience perspective that help guide you through that story. So when you think about here we are in this world now with this explosion of touch points, ways that businesses and brands um, can tell their story that didn't even exist a handful of years ago. So you have obviously apps and phones, and you have live spaces, large-scale live spaces, look at look at the proclivity of festivals that exist in the world now. Live entertainment has never been bigger than it is now. When you look at places that brands intersect with audiences now, you also look, obviously, at things like retail spaces. Retailers are now realizing that you have to create experiences. It can't just be about, hey, give them cool products and they'll show up and they'll buy stuff. That's not the way to build, to build a relationship anymore. So what's really interesting from my perspective is sort of recognizing that this scoring the experience everywhere has so many opportunities. I, like, you know, I've been doing this now for a while. I feel like we still just scratched the surface. You know, VR is a huge opportunity in terms of how people now can, uh, can interact between stories and people. And it's like scalable theater. Think about it. There's no camera moves. There's no cuts. There's no dissolves. There's no fancy camera tricks. So how do you drive narrative attention? How do you keep people interested and really engaged? Because that's what it's all about. Engaged, interested, building relationships. How can you do that in a VR experience? And uh, really in the VR work we've done, we've recognized that the vast majority of that narrative attention is driven by the sound. So thinking about all these different places where sound can make a huge difference. Um, that's really been sort of the the impetus, the the inspiration for man-made music and the work that we're doing and trying to continue to find ways to tell meaningful story, stories and build relationships between brands and people.
0: You remind me of that Wayne Gretzky quote of skating to where the puck is going, not where it is now. And you just did that a long time ago. And thankfully, you've had forward-thinking leaders and businesses who have understood that, and and not just tick the box with sound. Because you see it so many times. You you mentioned like movie soundtracking, and I I do it. My son Josh is, is seven, and he's when he he gets scared sometimes in a movie. Just they turn off the sound, and and this was before i had read the book because my my mom told me that when I was a kid just turn off the sound i remember watching nightmare on elm street with no sound and you mentioned this in the book and it wasn't scary at all because you had no cues like you said there was no cues to go you know the the shriek sound and and when you look at han zimmer's work say for batman and the joker and the fear and dread he gets across and that it's just so immense wow
1: your mom was brilliant
0: <laughs> yeah well it worked it worked and <laughs> yeah. i passed it on but you you do mention that in the book as well but it but it reminds me of what you're talking about in the book about the case of Sarah, the the lady who had her sound restored, first right. in one ear and, and the other ear. It'd be great to hear that because I, I feel the book does this at a different level. So for those of us who are fortunate enough to have hearing, mm. it, it makes us appreciate it a lot more.
1: Yeah. Well um, you're referring to Sarah Sherman, who uh, wrote her own wonderful book about the whole experience. But the 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 reason that I bring the story of Sarah Sherman into the book um, is really to illustrate what it was that her experiences were before and her experiences after. So one of the things that she she talks about in her book is how after her hearing was, was essentially restored, um, that, you know, miraculously with a cochlear implant, which, you know, is now just a regular routine surgery, which is mind-blowing that, that you can do that now for a certain percentage of the population uh, that has uh, um, profound hearing loss. What, you talk, what she was talking about is, is, oh my gosh, everything makes a sound. The little uh, candy wrappers, you know, that and, and I think at first also, having lived in a world without sound she was absolutely really overwhelmed by the fact that everything made a sound and that each of those experiences was almost so intense and intolerable at first. And then she, over time, became desensitized to it and sort of learned that she could now navigate her whole life and her whole environment uh, with sound, which is something we all take for granted. The fact that we really navigate our lives through sound uh, it, you know, it, but but her the way that she talks about it is so profound. Um, it's actually one of the things that, uh, and, and, you know, and just to kind of a little inside baseball or inside rugby, I guess. But uh, when when uh, when you came first to visit the studio, I had just shared with you some of the VR soundtrack work we were doing, and one of the things I had you do is look at VR without the sound and see how much was missing from the experience and then put the headphones back on, and then to see how much that the sound and music added. And and again, I, I think that it just proves to the truism of we don't understand the power of sound in our lives until it's gone. And then you restore it, and then you can really see how much it's providing to those experiences. I also want to just go back to one of the things you mentioned before, which I thought was very astute, which is that people often think about sound, but they also don't think about really, you know, I think about music and sound very much as a design. Okay. Uh, it's a soundtrack design. And and the work that we do in sonic branding is very much experience design or emotional design for experiences. And what's incredibly important in those designs is white space, like any design, a visual design, you have to have white space to make sense of the content. Uh, and for us, the white space is silence um, or perception of silence. One of the things I talk about in the book is there really is no such thing as silence. It's sort of a, a misnomer. There's always something that we're hearing, but but it's that negative space in the design that allows us to take a breath and 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 really then pay attention to the moments where sound shows up. I think probably the number one thing that freaks people out when we're working with them is they're whoa, you're the sound music guys. Why are you taking all the sound out? It's like, well, because... Without that contrast, without silence, without the negative space in the design, uh, it's just a cacophony. And to your point uh, from before, then really what we're doing is adding sonic trash to the world, which is not making anybody's experience better. In fact, it's making it dramatically worse. And as brands uh, utilize sound, if if they're creating sonic trash, people will hate them. So sonic trash sometimes is just too much sound and not enough white space. Sometimes sonic trash is you're giving them music or sound that is not in sync with the rest of the experience you've given them, or it's not in sync with what you expect from that brand. I mean, I think the headline for us, uh, and you know, I I know you've spoken about this many times on this program before, but that you have to be truthful in in your in your branding. You have to. Tell people stories that are honest and truthful. And if you try to fool them, people are way too smart now. You know, maybe back in the 1950s or 1960s, you could kind of brainwash people with a, a brand experience or brainwash brainwash people with sounds and music. Uh, jingles are out of favor. Why? Because it was a lie. You know, not maybe not everything is a happy, bright, sunny day in music land in association with your brand. And that's okay. Um, what people want is authenticity in their relationships with those brands. They want truth, because they want to build a real relationship, and the only way that they can build a relationship with you as a brand is if you're truthful.
0: You articulate actually so well what you cover in depth in the book. One of the things I thought about when I when I read about the story of Sarah regaining her hearing was then somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum. So somebody maybe with autism, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of what actually it is like for somebody with autism, they pick up every sound or oversensitive to sound. And I was thinking about the book that there's that spectrum. And that that's your skill in knowing what notes to call upon at what time, the sound of silence, I thought was really interesting, you talked about Disney's use of sound and silence in particular, in depth in the book and that's fantastic
1: yeah i mean i think one of the greatest examples is one of the simplest and i'm not the first person to call walt disney a genius but certainly the first uh, comprehensive experience designer probably on the planet certainly that i know of for those in your audience who have been to disney theme parks how there are distinctly different lands you know Uh, The the traditional Disney park is, uh, you know, there's Frontierland and there's Tomorrowland. But, you know, it it certainly wouldn't do if you heard the music and sound from Tomorrowland when you were in Frontierland. That would absolutely destroy the experience. So in the very, very simplest of ways, uh, they would build fountains, which created a natural white noise that actually made you feel good and was quite pleasurable because this is sort of natural sound in the midst of all of this kind of magic that they create. Uh, but it also is a, is a natural sonic barrier from the neighboring land. So that was one of the tools that, that they invented and, and, and used. There are others um, having to do with architecture and things, but the idea of using sound as a, a palate cleanser and a separator, is very, very simple, but very, very powerful. The other thing that they do if you go into the Disney parks, you hear, oh, there are birds in the trees. Well, guess what? There aren't. Uh, there are no birds in the trees, or very, very few, certainly not songbirds, which are the ones you hear in the trees. The songbirds also just kind of give you a little bit of a sense of calm, and they're also masking the sound of the planes overhead because most of the disney parks are right near airports so again hearing a plane overhead would pull you out of the disney magic so uh, just a couple examples of many many tactics they use to keep you in the experience keep you in their land
0: i read about walt disney so many times and so many different books and so many different coverages he did it out of pure passion and I, you see that in your work as well, that you did it out of passion and it almost like the world caught up with it. So you you did the thing that you really, you're really passionate about, you really did it well. Walt Disney nearly went bankrupt <coughs> on several occasions and Disneyland almost didn't happen. Mm. But I thought about experiences and the, and this only happened to me recently. I was telling Dan and Grace here in, I made music about this, where I was on holidays in Portugal last week and I stayed in a hotel and the hotel had Got their scent done specifically with Givaudan, who creates scent for brands, and they had the sonic branding right. They had this tone, and you talk about this in the book. What, what, what did they want to convey with the music that w- when you entered the hotel? So they had the sound playing in the room when I arrived. They had the sound playing in reception. It was all nice and chilled out. Really, really. Uh, quiet. And then they had the trickle of water outside, etc. So they'd done all those things right. But then their service was poor. <laughs> you had to wait in the restaurant for an hour and people were giving out. So it, it made me think that often sound is in that position, the service is great, maybe um, the, the comfort is great in the hotel, but they forget about sound. But you in this day of the age of experience, you need to think about every different element. And therefore, I think that's why sound you're right, your finger is right on the pulse. And people are waking up for this because you make more money from experiences than you from products.
1: Um, well, so many things that you just said there that I wholeheartedly agree with, again, I think those experiences are what creates a relationship and people want to do business with companies or brands with, with whom they have a relationship and a trust. The other thing that you just pointed to, which I think is incredibly important to talk about is multi-sensory experiences. It's not just about the sound. It's not just about the visuals. It's not just about what you say to people from a verbal perspective. It's not just about the brand behavior of technology. It's the sum total of all those things all working together. And, uh, honestly, the vast majority of the sound and music that we create in these branded experiences or in all the other communications and other kinds of storytelling we do, the vast majority of it, uh, If you notice the sound, we've actually done a bad job because it should feel so integrated into all the other elements of the experience that you don't even notice it until it's gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't even understand how, how much that's adding to the story or helping you understand your sense of place or time or opportunities or what you can get from this experience until the sound is gone. So... The other thing that's kind of interesting is in these multi-sensory kind of opportunities um, to understand the role of sound, we always say it's not about the sound. It's about the experiences we're creating and to remember that. We're lovers of music here, but we can't be hypnotized by just making great music. If I want to go go do a solo album, I'll go do that, and then it's all about the music. But in these experiences, we are serving something bigger than us, which is people's overall experience. The other thing that's kind of interesting to look at in these multi-sensory experiences and multisensory environments is that as human beings, we respond to sound quicker than any other sense, quicker than touch, um, which really means that the sound in a lot of ways becomes the organizer of all other senses. We hear something first, we recognize it, and instantaneously, and then really without knowing it, our brain is gonna try to make sense of all the other sensory input we have with the sound and if it fits together and it elevates our experience and it helps us know where we are and we're enjoying it it's a fantastic experience but the moment it's out of sync with other uh other sensory experience we're having then all of a sudden you have sonic trash
0: yeah and i'd love to come back to experience and particularly the fantastic work you've done with imax but before we do the, this triggers a thought with me mean, that I, I'd love to cover is is how you can manipulate sound for your your own personal brand. So people think, oh, Joel works with big brands, which you do, but we can also read the book and take out elements for ourselves. So how do I use my own voice? And mm. you talk about uh, a girl in the book who who actually her she's got the colours degree. She's so professional. She nails. She's very professional. at Work. She does great work. But her her voice. Yeah. is uh, she's an up-talker. She's
1: an up-talker. So that <laughs> means at the end of every sentence, everything's going to go up like it's a question. In general, certainly in the U.S., and I imagine it's probably a similar experience that people have in Ireland, but you would assume that person is maybe not that intelligent. You would assume... First of all, you would think, who wants to be in a room with this person? This this person would uh, really annoy me. Uh, and the, the story in the book is about... Um, how this person just learned how to express themselves differently, um, without the up talking, iron out the up talking, and be more expressive in the way they deliver uh, exactly the same information, and she wasn't she was unable to get a job until she did this work, and then all of a sudden she got the first job that she had applied to, so it really just proves that. Um, that in, in this example, you can see with the uh, in the sort of pitch of the voice that the delivery is incredibly important. It's in a way the musicality of the voice. If you're expressive and meaningful in the way you deliver, that that's just as powerful. And sometimes a lot more powerful than actually what you say.
0: Yeah. A lot of my friends tell me they, they listen to the show because I helped them go to sleep. <laughs> my monotone voice. Maybe Justin can help with that, with the sound, make it a bit more uh, dramatic. Well, just don't start up talking, please. (laughs) I know, but also you talk about stuff like the sound of your shoes. Because I've said this to people who've worked for me that you don't sound professional. Like, so you sneak in in your sneakers and you skulk along, but you need to have a walk almost. You know, you need to show the energy behind that. And you you talk about that in the book. But jumping back to experience, because you talk about scoring the experience. And I had the great experience here in in the studio of the IMAX at work that you've done. And I thought that was really interesting because they have the visuals. And so you had to do the work on the sound and I listened to it. I was actually uplifted by it so much. Be great to talk about that.
1: Sure. Well, um, it, it, it's, I'm going to get back to your experience of it, uh, in, in a bit because, um, That made me feel good because, oh, we actually accomplished what we intended to accomplish. So the very, very quick story about IMAX, which is, you know, of course, an incredible brand with incredible history, uh, is they had a problem. And the problem was um, they own this 30 seconds of real estate in the theater immediately before the showing of every single film, which is actually an enormously valuable piece of real estate because there are 1.4 million showings of IMAX films every year uh, across 64 countries. And they're on a thousand screens, from museums to uh, theatrical and a lot of space films. And so there's there's this very interesting swath of uh, filmmaking that where filmmakers want to take advantage of that IMAX uh, benefit, which is basically world-class visual experience, world-class sonic experience. So partly because of the, you know, I think partly the reason they came to us was, well, wait a minute, we have this new 12-channel system. And we don't want to just keep using, basically they had sound effects, which were not very identifiable. They had a visual identity, but not a very strong sonic identity that people would remember and and sort of uh, that, that you could... Um, quite frankly, one of the big advantages of having a sonic identity is a memory trigger. So we're creating these little memory triggers uh, so that you might have a great experience with an IMAX movie and then maybe a week or two later you go see another movie and right before you see the movie you'll have that little that little reminder um, of of the sonic uh, the sonic logo for IMAX that, appears right before the movie. But the story was they came to us and said, look, we're stuck in the middle of this very expensive neighborhood. So right before the movie, you're going to see advertisers who spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on their commercial messages. And there's brilliant visuals and soundtracks in association with that. Then there are trailers, which are based on visuals from multi-hundred million dollar movies. And then after their little 30 seconds, the film begins. Again, often very expensive, beautiful uh, stories and imagery, and they were getting completely lost in this expensive neighborhood, this ecosystem of what you experience in the theater. And they said, we want people to feel us in the equation. What, you know, they want people to feel their value in the chain. Um, yeah, the movies are great, but IMAX makes them much better. Um, through these world-class visuals and and uh, and and sound and uh, filmmakers, you know, most fam- most famous filmmakers would agree yeah. in that that it makes their work that much better. But they weren't getting credit. So how do we give them credit? So we have a whole process that we work through at Manmade, which is about sort of competitive analysis and looking at what's uh, what's out in the world, looking at what we call cultural context, which is looking at well, similar sort of. Uh, iconic um, experiential moments out in the world, what can we learn from things that people are already familiar with that might provide inspiration for exploration? Um, We try to hold these things in curiosity. How can we uh, come up with something that would be special and unique for them? Um, I actually got a chance to tour around the IMAX facility and walked into their vault and I I held a print of Batman Begins, which was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Um so they they certainly won me over just being able to sort of you know hear about the technology and meet with the engineers and learn about the 12 channel technology that they had just come up with and learn learn about the laser projection. So um they certainly inspired me and made me want to do my you know our absolute best for this. So when we sort of baked all that together it was well what's what's the essential unique uh tip of the spear on the creative work that we could do for them that would really make a difference for them in those experiences. And what we we sort of wrote a, our own little creative brief which is to say, you know, sort of what what are we holding in curiosity? IMAX sounds like pure experience. So what does pure experience sound like? That was sort of the beginning of the journey of explore, you know, exploring what could that sound like. And then uh we went through iterations of it and tried a bunch of things and then we we played for them this. What I think you can hear in this is the entirety of the story of IMAX. You can hear the space films. You can hear the documentaries. You can hear the heroic moments in heroic films or even quiet, beautiful moments in beautiful films. We then went on to create about seven versions and variations for different genres of films. So there were more specific sort of moments of music and sound that they could apply to uh, premieres of new movies. Um, but we also gave them this 30-second short version, which you'll you'll see next time you go into the theater uh, and you watch an IMAX film, you will see the 30 seconds of the countdown prior to the film, the short version of, of that anthem that we created for them that, with any luck, creates those sort of little moments of a memory trigger, emotional memory trigger, and helps you identify IMAX and their role in the filmmaking experience. And you were talking about the low lows and the high highs. That's aesthetic, but it's also to point out the fact that IMAX delivers the lowest lows and the highest highs available in any theatrical experience. Yeah.
0: One of the the things when we finish on it is the missed opportunities because I, I was watching one of my sons the other day was making Lego and he had lost two pieces and I was kind of going, this isn't going to finish well. And it reminded me actually, it, it triggered this interview and I was kind of going, people don't always identify that there's something missing, but there is. And you talk about Apple and it it, it puzzled me because when Apple, the obsession over the sound on the, the MacBook startup, you talk about this with the, uh, that iconic sound. And the actual synthesizer, the guy who did that, had to actually sneak it in behind everybody's back, got it in, and it's an iconic sound. But when you go into an Apple store, there's a huge missed opportunity there. And you talk about ATMs. That one was really interesting to me. You're, you're keying in your key. There could be a sonic boom moment there to just trigger something to remind you that this is my bank. And then I hear it somebody else and go, that's my bank. And you mightn't be able to ever articulate that or or identify it, but it's there in the back of your mind somewhere.
1: Uh, What you're pointing out is what we call sonic opportunities. There are so many different sonic opportunities and also opportunities for silence, by the way, in the design. That again, until you look at these things, you won't identify those opportunities. Jim Reek's, who created that iconic uh, Apple startup sound, what existed before him was musically what we would call a tritone, which is, you know, in, in back in the and 1700s, they called it a, the devil, the devil's interval because it made you really uncomfortable. So an uncomfortable sound in terms of a startup for a product, especially you think about the old Macs that used to crash all the time. It was like, "Oh, you just had a horrible experience, and I'm going to give you a horrible sound to remind you about your horrible experience." What Jim did was in the dark of night replace that sound with a, with a two-handed major C major chord which was full of possibility. And that that sound helped you understand you were about to not just turn on a computer, but be part of a movement. That was really the the magic of that idea. And and you were talking about an ATM It's great if the bank lets you know that it's their bank and then you have that trigger of that emotional experience, but imagine if the sounds that the interface makes on the ATM actually teach you how to use it. So there's a learning opportunity, making it easier for people uh, in ways that are completely intuitive. So as life gets more complex, our lives are getting much more complex, right? With technology and other kinds of things. The more we can provide intuitive, or what we call it Man next-level intuitive opportunities where people can intersect with products and devices and experiences and brands, the more next-level intuitive doesn't take any cognitive load. I don't have to think about it. it doesn't require any energy. It doesn't require any thought. It just makes sense. Um, the more people will love you. There's an example of a, a product that we created uh, the soundtrack for called Glue Home, won a bunch of awards at uh, at uh, CES, which is the big consumer electronics show in the states, and uh, very uh, the, the the idea of next level intuitive was foremost in our minds. So that the you know basically what it is is a connected lock system for the Airbnb generation. So you can with an app uh, give people permission, and they can with their with their uh, phone unlock and lock a uh, a home or, or different you know parts of a home or something. And the locking mechanism sound is a stylized version of a deadbolt. It's like, oh, I know what that sounds like. It sounds like a deadbolt lock throwing, but it's specific and particular to this product. And it doesn't sound like any other deadbolt I've ever heard. But it's next level intuitive. I don't, You don't have to tell me that the door is locked. I know that it's locked. So we're looking for those sonic opportunities in these branded experiences.
0: Yeah. And uh, uh, with the world moving to screenless more and more so, we're talking about Amazon, Alexa. All these kind of products are voice driven products. Their opportunity is immense. And so, so Joel, I, th- I think, you know, the book does leave you. It's almost like that Jim Reek sound. There's an opportunity here and the book leaves you with that. And you, you finish with this beautiful Michelangelo quote. Well,
1: yeah, it it's, it's one of my favorites because it does speak to taking all, all the sound out of experiences that are not relevant. Uh, Michelangelo said that every block of stone has a statue inside of it, and it's the task of the sculptor to discover it in a lot of ways, the work that we do, taking out all the meaningless sound so that the meaningful sound in music can come to the surface and create great experiences. That's really what we're all about.
0: Brilliant. Joel Beckerman. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and the opportunities there. Brands are coming to you in flocks, and we wish you every success in the future. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much.